Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. How are we doing? How are the rest of you? All right, that's great. Um, when was the last time you were surprised? Some of you are like about 20 seconds ago when he said circumcision a hundred times in that passage. Like, I didn't, what are we talking about today? What is this? When was the last time you were surprised? Was it a good surprise or a bad surprise? You like surprises? I mean, it probably depends on it, whether it's good or, or whether it's bad, right? I mean, how, how many of you, like, you had a surprise birthday party for you at one point, and you, you pretended to hate it, but really you loved it? Nobody, right? Just a, just a few people? I, I think there's something really cool about being surprised, particularly not in like a scary, ah, wow, you know, jump out, but, but like when, you, when you've looked at something a certain way for a while, and then you're surprised because you see it in a new, fresh way. Um, and so I want to show you a video. A lot of you have probably seen this. It's from a, a show called Br Britain's Got Talent. You've probably seen this going around the web at different points. But I want to show you one of my favorite moments uh, when there was a huge surprise. Take a look. I've always wanted to perform in front of a large audience. I'm going to make that audience rock. Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, uh, where are you from? I am from Blackburn, near Bathgate, West Lothian. Uh, it's a big town. It's a sort of collection of... It's a collection of... Uh, villages. I just think there. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> and that's just one side of me. Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but here's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes. the rest you, you got you got the internet you know you can probably pull it up on your phone right now and just finish finish the whole deal that's amazing isn't it and a lot of you have seen that before maybe maybe you hadn't seen it and but even in you know the way I'd set it up you knew there was a surprise coming but imagine that you're there and you're in the audience and up walks this lady who does not look anything like what you imagine a great singer to be and, and, and wouldn't you be just like that girl who was there rolling her eyes? Wouldn't you, honestly? 
And, and then moments later, you'd be on your feet. You'd be amazed. You'd be astounded. Well, that kind of change in perspective is just to me a picture of the kind of change in perspective, the, the kind of surprise that, that begins to happen, I think, for the people who originally received this letter. The people who received this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul is writing to the book of Romans, they had a preconceived notion about how things were. They assumed that the only way you could be right with God was to do a lot of good things and to be connected to the Jewish people, to be Jewish. That's why uh, Paul is going to talk in here about circumcision and uncircumcision. Circumcision was just a, a, a symbol that was given to represent the Jewish people. So all these people are sitting there, and they're in the audience, and they assume, here's this way that you get to know God. And, and, and in walks the Apostle Paul. And he's not that impressive of a guy. But then he writes this letter, and he writes these astounding words that, that makes it where people who are rolling their eyes that there could be any way to God other than by just working really hard and being Jewish begin to go, wow. Eyebrows up. I didn't see that coming. They get this amazing news of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at today, is we're going to look at how the Apostle Paul in this particular passage unveils four surprises that have the power to totally change your perspective. Four surprises that, that powerfully reshape our perspective. Here are the, the surprises we'll look at. We'll look at the surprising news of the gospel. We'll look at the surprising perspective on Abraham the surprising place of obedience, and the surprising implication for us as the church. So first, the surprising news of the gospel. We, we've talked about this along the way, uh, but it's important just to recap and to remember, in case you're new and you haven't been with us, or, or even so, ju just to hear this again, is it's such good news that you got to hear it. So, so jump back up to Romans chapter 3, verse, verses 23 and 24. Where Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means to be made right with God, justified by His grace, that means undeserved, unmerited favor. You were made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're given a gift of being made right with God. That's what he's saying. That is a gift, which is why we don't boast. That's what he says in 327. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Why? Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. You're made right with God by trusting him, by faith, apart from works of the law, regardless of what you've done. And so that's what we've looked at over these last number of weeks. And we were kind of joking with some folks today of going, uh, what, what's the sermon about today? It's about how you get made right with God by faith. Didn't you, didn't you talk about that last week? Yeah. Didn't you talk about that the week before? Yeah. Didn't you talk about the week before that too? Yeah. Listen, we did three months on sin. We can go back to that if you want. But we got some good news here. I mean, Paul is, is unpacking. This, this, these are the kind of sections of Scripture that are why so many people love the book of Romans, because he presents this surprising news. The way that everyone thought was you could only be made right with God by keeping the law, by keeping the Old Testament commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament, one of which included the idea that you needed to be circumcised. You needed to become Jewish before you could ever be accepted by God. And Paul is coming in here and he's saying, listen, God 
It's not you trying to get to God. It's, it's God's come to you. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He uses Abraham as an example. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Wasn't Abraham obeyed a lot of things and therefore he was righteous? He, he believed God and that was credited to him, counted to him. And so there's a huge blessing that comes with that. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's a huge blessing. If you commit wrongdoing against God, for God to forgive it, for God to cleanse you from it, that is a huge blessing. You'll be a happy person if you've had that kind of sin like David did, forgiven. And so Paul begins this section. Look at verse 9. He says, is this blessing then, the blessing of, what what blessing? The blessing of having your sins forgiven and covered. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is this only for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? That's what this is about. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. So we'll get into these other things, but you've got to understand how surprising this news of the gospel is. And the word gospel, if I say that a number of times, just know the word gospel means good news. And and we love surprises when it's good news. And that's what this is. And and the thing that makes this so surprising is that we we come with a mindset that just says, I don't see how that could be. It's It's such a different approach than anything that we're familiar with. We assume that that I've got to do something. I can't just have my sins cleansed. I got to clean them. I got to do it. I got to contribute. And that's really what religion is all about. We talked last week about the difference between every religion in the world and Christianity is that every other religion is trying to cleanse themselves through doing good. Christianity says, God cleansed me by sending his son Jesus. Here's the thing. Religion is too dirty to wash away your sin. Do you know what the largest gathering of people in human history was? It took place in January or February. I don't know if you actually even heard about this or if you knew about this. The largest gathering of people in human history was for Kumbh Mela, which is a 55-day-long festival in India where over, uh, over 100 million people made a pilgrimage to this place, this little town where these three rivers converge. One of them is the Ganges, another is the Yamuna. These, these rivers, yeah, you see a picture of this, a mass of humanity. 55-day Hindu feast. It happens every 12 years. And this year, over those 55 days, they had over 100 million people. Just to give you sort of scope of this, this would be like a third of the United States traveling to, to be cleansed in the Mississippi River in a town a tenth of the size of St. Louis. That's a, big, that's a big event. And the whole point of it is to go to this river and to be cleansed. It's a ritual cleansing to, to wash away any uncleanness that you have, any moral defilement that you have. Now, here's what's ironic about this is the Ganges River is one of the top five most polluted rivers in the world. You spend time in the Ganges River and you're going to get dysentery and cholera, hepatitis perhaps, diarrhea. In fact, children who go in there and bathe, it's not uncommon for many of them to get very, very sick, even die. 
Isn't it ironic that the thing that people would attempt to get them clean actually makes them dirtier? That's what Paul's been saying. He's been saying every attempt you do to get clean, every attempt you do to do the right thing or perform the law or obey this, it just makes you dirtier. It just adds more sin because it's just you trying to do what only God can do. It's you putting yourself in the place of God. But in the gospel, it's not that we have to make a long pilgrimage to get clean. It's that God in Jesus made a pilgrimage to us. He came to us. And we're cleansed by his perfect, righteous, infinite, divine blood. The gospel's different from everything else. It's surprising news. There's also a surprising perspective on Abraham given in this passage. Uh, Look at this in verses 9 through the first part of verse 11. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul is kind of doing a history lesson here, and we actually did this a couple weeks ago. We went back into the book of Genesis, and we looked at Abraham's story. We went into Genesis 12, uh, and we saw where God calls Abram and says, I want you to go and follow me. And then we went to Genesis 15, which is where God makes him this incredible promise. Look up in the sky, see all the stars. I'll give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And, and, And it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we mentioned a couple weeks ago that, it's, that that happens in chapter 15. He's declared righteous. He's accepted by God in chapter 15. And then it's not until chapter 17 that God then says, I want you to get circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Now, this puts a surprising perspective on Abraham, especially for those who had originally received this letter. They had a perspective of Abraham that that Abraham was righteous because Abraham did good things and because Abraham was Jewish and because Abraham was circumcised. But Paul makes here a shocking statement. And again, it's hard for us because we we don't live in this Jew-Gentile tension that they lived in, but imagine that, 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 that you're in these early days. What Paul writes here would have been shocking. He says, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul had been asking, is this for the circumcised or the uncircumcised, the Jew or the Gentile? And then he comes back and he says, listen, Abraham wasn't righteous because he was a Jew. When Abraham was declared righteous, he was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile when he was made right with God. This would have blown their minds for these Jews who thought there's no way that God could save the outsider. There's no way that God could save the uncircumcised, the Gentile. He's saying that's what Abraham was when God made him righteous. It's a whole new perspective. Paul then, with this, gives us the surprising place of obedience the surprising place of obedience. Perhaps as I've talked over these last few weeks, if you've been here, uh, perhaps you've thought, you know, I'm hearing a lot about grace 
and about how God accepts me, not, not through what I do or after all that I've done, but, but apart from what I've done. And I feel like there's something you're not talking about here, Luke. I, I feel like the Bible says some things about obedience. The Bible says some things about doing the right thing and about doing good works, and, and it doesn't seem like you're talking about that. What is, is there a place for obedience in the Christian life? Well, get this. The Scripture is filled with commands to obey. I mentioned all the ones in the Old Testament. There's a lot in the New Testament. In fact, when we get to chapter 12, Paul's going to give command after command after command after command after command. There's a lot of things that we're supposed to obey. But, but what he shows us in this passage is the place of obedience. So he never says obedience is irrelevant in your life. What he says is obedience doesn't get you saved. Obedience follows, it doesn't cause anything. Look at what he says in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And and think about this just for a moment. Abraham was 99 when he got circumcised. He wasn't a baby. All right, so that's an act of obedience. I know some, I've seen some folks that have had a vasectomy and y'all limp around for a couple days. It looks painful. It ain't this bad. This is worse. This is an act of obedience. Like, God, really? I, did, I must not have heard that right. So, so no question about it, Abraham obeyed. And Abraham's obedience was costly. The question is, in what order? Was it before? Was it Abraham's obedience of circumcision that made him righteous? No. It was the gift of righteousness that allowed him to obey. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So so the place of obedience is important. right? A lot of people think of obedience as the root got to obey. If I obey, then God will accept me. I got to do this because then God, it's, it's the cause. It's the root. The reality the scripture says is obedience isn't the root. Obedience is the fruit. The, the, the root is, is God's sheer grace. It's not I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It's I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore I obey. And obedience becomes the fruit. It becomes the result of our lives. The place of obedience is critical here. I think you understand this. You can see uh, two people, and they're both praying. They both read the scripture. They both serve in church and fill out the on-ramp form. They're in a community. They're experiencing all that nurture and life and grace. And they're, and they're two people doing the same thing, but for, it can be for totally different reasons. Right For one person, it's, I better do this, then God will accept me. For another person, it's, wow, God's accepted me. I can't believe I get to do this. Do you get it? It's a surprising place of obedience. Finally, uh, Paul begins to introduce something that, that we'll get to more as we get later in this book, but, but there's a surprising implication for the church. Surprising implication for the church. Now, this is key because up to this point, in, as we've studied Romans, we've focused mostly individual. 
We've talked about kind of individual sin. Each of us are individually sinners. We're separated from God. We need to be individually made right with God because of what Jesus has done individually for us. And all that is right and all that is true. But there's another part of this. You've got to remember, when Paul's writing this, he's not writing this letter just to a person. He, it, that's why it's not called Frank. It's called Romans. Right? Otherwise it'd be like, hey Frank, you've got a problem. Here's what God did for you. And, Right? But it's not. It's, it's a group of people. And so, so he's writing to a community here, a group of churches, probably in the city of Rome. And, and so what that means is that, yes, he, he knows that there are things going on for them, that they need to be made right with God. Each of those individuals need to be made right with God. But he also knows that, that this truth of being made right with God, sort of vertically speaking, has horizontal implications. It's a cross-shaped gospel. It has horizontal implications. And one of the implications is, is Paul's writing in this church, and he knows this church is, is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. People that grew up with the law and were circumcised and were part of that tradition, and people who weren't, people who had heard about the good news of Jesus. And because of this cultural divide, some of these people are having a hard time getting along, and there's increasing division. And so one of the sort of sub-themes of this book is how the gospel unifies people rather than divides them. And we get an implication of this in this particular passage. Look at the middle of verse 11. Why'd God do all this? The purpose was to make him, that's Abraham, the purpose is to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So picture yourself, you're in this Roman church, and there are some Jews who kind of have this mentality of, you know, it's great you believe in Jesus, but until you're part of our Jewish people, you, you can't really count Abraham as your father. Paul says, no, no. This happened when Abraham was a Gentile to show you that this promise is available for all who would believe. Anybody who would believe. Now get this, it, there's still something you got to believe, right? He's not just saying this leads to universalism, God will just automatically save everyone. But he's saying this, God will save all who believe. Red, yellow, black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile, young, old. The gospel's available to all, even people like us, Arizonans. Can you think about this? Prior to this gospel coming, you had to hit this genetic lottery of, of landing in this one spot of the world, having one ancestry where you could know God. And the gospel comes and says, no, it's for for all who believe, every tribe and tongue and language and nation. So what the gospel does, the implication here that, that, that Paul is going to unearth a little bit more, but, but just by implication here, this gospel then eliminates the kind of tribal, well, this is just for us. This is just for people like me. It eliminates that. It says, no, that, that's not possible. It eliminates that kind of exclusive in and out you're not the right race, you're not the right whatever. It eliminates that. What it's doing is it's eliminating legalism. 
Now, when we think of legalism, we typically think of it in kind of a typical, the typical way of thinking about legalism is, is the whole path of religion. I got to obey, therefore God will accept me. I got to do the right thing. And again, that's, that's a very vertical kind of legalism. But, but there's also horizontal legalism. And horizontal legalism is one of the implications here for us as a church 2,000 years later. Is horizontal legalism says, I'll accept you if you're like me, you believe like me, you like the things I like. It, it, it's, it's the opposite of what God does for us in the gospel. And the gospel says, I'm going to accept you even though you're a wreck. Legalism says, I'll accept you if you get on my agenda. Now, when we think about legalism, we typically just think about it in that, got to read my Bible, got to pray, got to go to church, got to give, and, and all that is a, is a form of legalism. But there's some other kinds that I think are more subtle and that I actually think are more dangerous, and I want to I kind of camp on these for a little bit and, and kind of just get into some of the, what does this mean for us? And, and here's what I'll say. Most things that people get legalistic about start with a great eye-opening experience. So, for instance, imagine you like to read and study theology and truth. And you read in the Bible and you read in theology books about God's amazing grace that before the foundation of time, God set his love on you and pursued you and, and, and chose you and, and, and saved you. That God saved sinners. And, and you begin to study that. You begin to learn that. And you, you go, wow, I had no idea how big God is. That's amazing. Begins with an eye-opening experience. Or maybe you would have a, a thing where you, you go to another country, maybe a poor country in, the, in Central America or in Africa or somewhere else. And, and, and you see the poverty that's there. And you just go, wow, these people are so joyful, and I don't need all this stuff, and I, man, God, I, I want to simplify my life. I want to make things easier. I, I need to get rid of a bunch of stuff, and sell stuff, and downsize, and, and, and listen, that's great. Begins with an eye-opening experience. Maybe you have, you know, a, a situation with your, your kids where, you know, you begin to discipline in a particular way or teach them a particular way or, or you have certain questions you ask and it's this eye-opening experience how it really connects with them. Great. Maybe you have a school situation where you go, you know what, um, just for whatever reason, we want to try doing school at home. And I'm going to do that and it's this great experience. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe you've done school at home and you go, you know what, I, for whatever reason, I want to get my kids in a public school, and you do that, and it's this great experience. See, all of these things that pe can become legalism start with a great eye-opening experience, and that's fine. Praise God that he gives us those. Amen? But here's when it becomes legalism. It becomes legalism when those things start to be the, the litmus test of whether you're really serious about God, of whether I can really have fellowship with you, maybe even of whether you're a Christian. So for the theological person, it's asking a lot of questions to diagnose. Are you reformed enough? Are you gospel-centered enough? Are you missional enough? What do you think about predestination? What do you think about election? 
What do you think about the order salutis? Right? Because listen, with all this stuff, there's code words that go with it. Right? It all has an insider language. And, and, and then you start to ask those questions, and someone's like, I, I don't know, I, I like Jesus. And I, and I asked him in my heart, and you go, eh. that's not the right way to talk about it. Probably not saved. Right? That, that's how that works. Or, or on the sort of, I had this life-changing cross-cultural experience. It's like, you begin to go, well, the rich young ruler gave up everything. Would you? Are you radical? Do you have crazy love for Jesus? Should you really be driving that car? Well, you're going to upsize because you have another kid. I don't know if God would like that. Right? And it becomes this dividing line. Or maybe it's parenting. Do you grow kids God's way? Do you shepherd their heart? Right? And some of you laugh because you know all this inside language. You don't spank with a thing like this. You use a spoon. Or you don't spank at all. I don't know. Might not be a Christian. Right? You, you get this? See, Jesus came with a wide net. And yes, it's a, it's a narrow, you gotta, there's only one, you got to believe, right? That's what he says. It's, it's for all who believe. you got to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. you got to believe that he, he's come to save you. But, but it's a wide net. It's for anyone. It's for sinners, right? That's who Jesus hung out with. Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus hung out. He didn't feel comfortable with the religious people who knew all the code words and always trying to trap him. He felt comfortable with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. People said, don't pay attention to him. He, he eats and drinks with, with gluttons and drunkards. And Jesus said, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and Jesus comes with this big net saying anyone who would believe, even your enemies, and, and we want to make it smaller. We want to make it people like us. Here's a, a thing that I, I've been convicted by. I was reading a, a book this week. Just hap- I didn't know how these, this passage in this book would intersect, but a phenomenal book by Larry Osborne called Accidental Pharisees. He makes the point that the Fer- right, Pharisees now is like this, ooh, don't be a Pharisee. Well, the Pharisees, when they started, didn't know that's what it was going to become. They were just people going, we got to take God seriously. we got to take his word seriously. we got to glorify him. we got to obey him. And it devolved into this legalistic thing. And he's saying so many of us, and especially leaders and pastors and ministry people, like, like drift into this kind of legalism. And, and one of the forms of it that I've been convicted of is this kind of gift projection. Right? Where you are a certain way by your personality and by your experiences and by diff- just the way God's wired you. And I'm a certain way because of how God's wired me. And it's very easy for me to sort of imagine that the spiritual path, the, the, the description of someone who's very spiritually mature, isn't it interesting that a lot of times the way I think is that the description of a really mature person just so happens to look like me. And for you, it probably just so happens to look a lot like you. And God's gifted me, I'm a leader, 
I'm an extrovert. I like, I don't, I don't mind connecting with random people. I was in sales over the phone before I was in ministry, right? So this is just how I am. It's not like a spiritual thing. It's just how God's wired me. And it can be very easy for me to sort of drive by guilt everyone. Well, you need to be a leader. You need to go greet everyone and make new friends with everybody. And, right? And, and, and a lot of you are going, well, that's not how God made me. Osborne, in his book, calls it chocolate-covered arrogance. It looks good, but it's a mess on the inside. See, and the Scripture tells us that we're a body, that we're a a, a body of Christ, that, that no one person can adequately represent Jesus to each other and to the world, that together we make up the body of Christ. And some of us are an eye, and some are an ear, and some are a foot, and some are a, a, a chest, and some are a, a neck. And we're, we're all different things, and we all play different roles. But what happens in this sort of, this, this kind of legalism, we go, if people aren't like me, then I don't want to be around them. This is one of the tensions you've got to navigate, honestly, as you think about joining a, a community like we were talking about earlier, is I know in some ways you want to be with people like you. That makes all the sense in the world. On the other hand, some of what you need is to be with people that aren't like you. So there's a tension there. I don't know exactly what to do with it. But I know for, for me, if I begin to, to, to think of myself as the definition of spirituality, it's going to lead me into a sin that God hates, which is pride. It's a kind of legalism. Do you get that? Here's one of my favorite quotes from Osborne's book uh, on this. It's just really clever how he writes this. He says, if you're an eye, so again, imagining the parts of the body. Imagine you're an eye. That's the part you are. If you're an eye, you'll start to devalue the ears as ancillary and second-class appendages because they can't see anything. You'll attend some special vision conferences where you'll gather with other eyes to celebrate the beauty of sight, learn new ways to sharpen your vision, and listen to guest eyes bemoan the terrible blindness that ails the rest of the body. Eventually, you'll join a vision-focused church where you can study the latest in biblical optometry and congratulate yourselves for your clarity of vision in a world gone blind, all the while hardly noticing that you and your eye friends can no longer do much besides see. You have no feet for walking, no mouth for talking, and no ears to hear anything but your own thoughts. Listen, I I want us as a church to be people who study the Scripture. I want to be people who think seriously about our lifestyle and the choices that we make in a culture gone rampant with consumerism and materialism. I want us to think about that. I want us to think about parenting and family and how to do it in a winsome and cross-cultural way. And we've got to think hard about those things. We've got to read books on those things. We've got to have conversations on those things. We've got to do all that. But if those things become the line, where we'll accept you or not. If that happens, then then we're not like God. Because God has accepted us apart from those things before we had any of it figured out. And we need to love each other that same way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, thank you that you accept us graciously apart from works of the law. God, our prayer is that we would be um, as loving to one another 
and to those who have not yet found you as Jesus was. And God, if we're honest, we're not. And yet we thank you that that doesn't even stop you. That you can give us a new love and a, a new heart to care about people in a fresh way. So God, we pray that you do that. We pray that this, this vertical truth would become real to us in such a way that we would then extend that same grace to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Luke. So, um, now we get to respond. Uh, my favorite time. And Luke's message has been his.